Welcome back to the OWASP Podcast. For this episode, we're headed to The Void. I speak with Courtney Nash about the Verica Open Incident Database, otherwise known as The Void, which is a collection of software-related incident reports available at thevoid.community. That's one of those new uh, top-level domains, so don't be confused. And there's links in the show notes. It's a fascinating discussion about how, by gathering data from the void, we can make the internet a safer and more resilient place. Courtney was super passionate about the research work she's doing. It's completely fun to chat with her. And they've already produced some very interesting conclusions in the reports published available on the void website. I had a blast recording this one, and I hope you enjoy it. This is the OWASP podcast series. The OWASP podcast series is supported by the Open Web Application Security Project, home to over 240 community-driven security projects, including the OWASP Top 10, the Web Security Testing Guide, and the Security Knowledge Framework Projects. Hi, I am here with Courtney Nash, and we're going to enter the void. We're going to talk about a nice uh, site that they have called The Void at thevoid.community. And, and Courtney, you want to do a quick introduction so our audience can get to know you? Yeah, sure. Hi, I'm Courtney Nash. I am a senior research analyst at Verica and the creator of said void. I have a background in all kinds of weird technology things. Notably, worked at O'Reilly Media for about nine years and chaired the Velocity Conference. Was involved in a lot of those early things and some of the early Chaos Community Days um, pieces that were started by Casey Rosenthal, who is the CEO of the company I now work for. So kind of have come full circle from getting really interested in system safety and human factors and socio-technical systems and all those things. And they brought me on partly to do product research for Verica, which is a, sort of an evolution of chaos engineering. And so I was, I was spelunking public incident reports related to Kafka and Kubernetes. Because as we all know, those are very simple things that work all the time as expected. As long as the 4,052 knobs are in the right position, they work beautifully. <laughs> so I, I, the problem with this kind of thing is once you start looking at some re, you know, re, public incident reports, and I'm, I'm a total nerd for these things, then you can't stop. And so I had been looking at other databases of these, like Dan Liu has a great set that he has on a GitHub repo of, and there's another one called Kubernetes.af. And talking to a lot of people, we realized, wow, this is really useful to have not just these, but just this broader set. And of course, having been involved with, oh, I guess I also should say I started O'Reilly's security conference and that the whole sort of security content program there while I was there. And there's already some precedent for this in security, right? Like we have things like DBIR and there's lots of breach databases. There wasn't really anything comprehensive for availability. For, for lack of a better term, which is sort of the other side of the coin of security. And so we decided to do it. So that's the void, the Verica Open Incident Database. It is 
a collection of publicly available incident reports primarily related to things falling over. So not there's a few security. There are security things in there and we can talk a little bit more about that. Largely like uh, DDoS and, and ransomware. So some kind of bad event targeted at a company that then takes their site down. So it has an availability, a bad availability outcome. And the other thing, so they're all publicly available. So we're not going and getting these and writing them up ourselves. There's things that people have taken the time. They're also a broader set than people might expect. Um, when you think incident reports, you think, oh, GitHub or AWS wrote up this event. But we have tweets, we have media articles, we have anything that talks about software falling over. And that's, I can talk about more, but we just wanted to take a really broad look at what's happening. And the ultimate goal of this is to just for us to be very open and sharing information about these things, because we all want to make the internet safer and more reliable, right? Is it what we wanted it to be? Uh, probably not quite. Those of us who grew up at a certain time when the internet started to show up, it hasn't quite lived up to our expectations. And along with not living up to our expectations, it runs everything. So that's a fun combination. Terrifying and omnipresent. That's what we're dealing with. And uh, I just wanted to have a place where we could encourage people to analyze and write up their outages and events. And to share that information. And sometimes people will say, well, why? Why does sharing, what, what, how does that help? And then kind of twofold answer on that one. One, the technology industry has an insane amount of commoditized knowledge that we all pick up and carry with us to every single company we go to. But it, how do we share that? Hopefully we go on podcasts and we go to conferences and all of that. But I wanted one place for these kinds of things to live. And then secondly, there's precedent for information sharing like this, improving the safety of complex systems. And that's the airline industry. So back in the 90s in the United States, things were not good in the airline industry. They had a pretty terrible safety rating, high level of crashes and fatalities, and they were all looking around at each other. This is bad. It's not going to get better unless we do something about it. And to a certain degree, obviously a regulated industry, but like looming regulation that was going to make things like even harder for them. So a group of pilots initially, and I think a couple of airline execs got together and said, okay, I don't care which company you fly for or whatever, we're going to share our incidents with each other. And they started realizing, oh, you had that thing happen over there and we had this thing and they're very similar. And how could we think about ways to improve the safety of our systems, both technical and social. And they did this over a period of time. And eventually the FAA got involved and air traffic controllers and ground crew and like all these people kind of joined this as a groundswell. They were like, hey, look over here in this dark corner <laughs> and, and shine light on those things. And, and so that active sharing of information really had a, a demonstrable impact on the safety of that industry. So I think we could do the same. And I think we should do the same before somebody else decides to top down do it for us. And that's already happening. And security things are already regulated in interesting ways. And we're seeing a lot going on in terms of discussions about how much more that might happen. This is right in line too with OWASP mission, right? One of the things is to make security visible and this is making these things visible. And I have to double down on your, well, I might even argue with you a bit on your security. This is incidents. Is it really security? Is it not? Honestly, availability is one of the CIA triad. It's there. That's yeah, that's what it is. It is in there. I think people, you know, and I don't, it's, it, availability is, a, is an incredibly important thing to security. Yes, totally. If I misspoke myself there, then maybe trying to draw too, too fine a line there between those things. 
I, so, I wanted to make sure people got that it's really both sides. And I actually don't like distinctions between, well, this is a security yeah. problem. This is a functional problem. This yeah. is a, a availability problem. This is a performance problem. They're all just problems. And like, they're all complex system wanna, problems. Yeah. Right? You probably want to tag yeah. them so you know what domain they're in, perhaps, but they're yeah. all just problems that need to get resolved. And I, I like arguing over the nuances. It's a performance versus security versus <laughs> yeah. whatever. Yeah. I don't want to waste my time. It's just not worth it. I, I agree. And I think the other point that I wanted to make was there's a lot of us who've been arguing for changing our approach to how we think about failures and outages and complex systems. But it's, well, it feels like we're yelling into the void. <laughs> and so the other thing that I really wanted to do with this was back claims that a lot of people have been making based on either academic research or anecdotal experience with data. And I think that's one of the most important things about this is that by pulling all of these things together in one place, we're able to take a much more sort of comprehensive and in-depth look at things that, and, and I think debunk a few myths, to be perfectly honest, with the way that we treat these kinds of systems. So we collect a bunch of metadata from all the reports that come in. So it, we know the organization, we know the date of the incident almost exclusively. There's one or two weird ones where you can't tell exactly when they happened. We know the date of the report. If that information is in the report, we know the duration of the incident as determined by the organization. And we all know that deciding how long something takes is, is a, probably a philosophical argument that no one wants to get into. Um, but as that organization has said, it started here and ended here. If we have that, we have that metadata. We have a brief description of the event that came from the write-up. And, and we have any technology that was involved if they mention it. So if your Kubernetes cluster fell over and you talk about that, then we'll pull that information in. If people just say our site was down for 20 minutes, that's all we know, right? So we have this kind of not complete set of metadata. And I wanted to start poking around at some of those duration types of data. Because you know, I found this really cool report that I felt like this thing just completely flew under the radar last year. But an engineer at Google took publicly available incident data, like what we have now, he went and did kind of what we'd done, scraped a bunch of stuff and got all of this and looked at their duration data. And he found exactly the same thing we found, which was if you look at the distribution of those duration, like over time, and you can graph that by organization, it's essentially a histogram, right? So you bin, bear with me folks, we're like, we're going back to like stats 101, but if you bin those durations, uh, let's take Google, right? by hour. So you take however many by hour over some period of time, let's say the last three years. Did it take an hour? Was the incident resolved in two hours, three, whatever, you bin them and you get this very skewed distribution. So you know what a normal bell curve, this is so hard on an audio podcast, <laughs> a normal bell curve. No one can see me like drawing with my hand, but a normal bell curve. Yeah. Right. She's quickly drawing a single camel hump. Yes. A single camel hump with a clear middle and things are evenly falling off on each side. And the middle is the mean, the median and the mode. Yay. That's not what duration data look like for incidents. So they're skewed. They're what's called positively skewed, but basically that means that most of them are towards the left. We don't have a negative, right? But so towards closer to zero than not. And in fact, in our data across almost every organization, over half of people's incidents by their account are resolved in under two hours. So that's why it's it's so skewed. So big bump up that way, and then a nice long weird tail full of strange things um, that go bump in the night. And so here's the problem. How many of you listening use or think about or 
make sense of incidents using mean time to resolve, MTTR. That's a term that it's an it's an acronym that most people are probably familiar with, right? Yeah, standard Back standard to operating step procedure. Yeah, standard operating procedure and the metric that people like to kick around, right? It was MTR. It's, right. It's, it's just the, the it's the norm. two hours. It's blah 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 blah. Right. It's wrong. And it's wrong because of the distribution of your data. So I challenge everyone to go collect whatever, I don't care, enough, at least a year's worth of your incident data, bin them into a histogram, chart them. I would bet money that they are skewed in the way that I describe it. Technically, it's a log normal distribution. Just like you want to go real stats nerdy. But what matters if you have a skewed distribution is that measures of central tendency so mean, median, mode, do not accurately represent your data. They're called central tendencies because the center of a bell curve, of a normal curve. So when you have a skewed distribution, you have a lot of outliers, you have a lot of variance in your data, and the mean is not an accurate representation of that set of data. Worse than that, this is what the, the Google engineer found, you can't tell differences in that me. If you use a mean for that kind of a data distribution, you could be wrong 50% of the time. So you've spent all this time trying to up a statistic that is functionally meaningless. Right? Yeah. Everyone wants MMTTR to be better, right? I want to make that better. It should be like, let's fix it quicker, which is, I fix it quicker, like, great. I, I agree with that. But if that's your measurement, and like you're saying, your incidents skew it, what, what are you measuring? You're not measuring what you need to measure, that's for sure. That's interesting. No. I never honestly had thought through that. It makes perfect sense the way you explained it. Because, of course, when there have been incidents, it's an OMG, like, let's get it up again. Everyone's hyper-focused, right? So you would assume it would skew that way because that's the, the better of the resolutions, right? Unless there's some really hairy problem. But And then those hairy problems, though, are your long tail, right? You don't know that, actually. Yeah. So... Oh. No, you don't know that either. And I have early data that show that like the severity or the nastiness of the incident don't correlate with the duration. Oh, now that is, see, that's counterintuitive to me because my brain told me like the nasty ones are the long ones, but the nasty ones can be the quick ones. And so I have I am working on that right now. That's going to be in the spring report when we, when I finally get my hands on enough data, but a couple companies status page data that I've scraped and looked at, it's almost a zero correlation between severity and duration. Wow. That is, I would have not guessed that. And that's one of the things I love about these kind of just like, I'm going to gather the data and see what happens exercises is you get those surprises, right? I've yeah. done similar things across, like when I was in product security across our applications and the, like, you know, you may have these rough assumptions going in, like the older ones are going to be more of a train wreck than the newer ones. And and a lot of that just doesn't prove out. Like your conventional no. wisdom is kind of bupkis. It's really hard because it, I, I mean, you should see people fight me on this stuff. <laughs> like they're just like, but, and I'm like, I know, but it feels right. Like it, 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 intuitively it makes sense. And it's like the same way that humans are bad at probability. Like we suck at it. But probability, probability is still probability, <laughs> like whether you can internalize it or not. And I think this is kind of one of those same phenomenon. But I will, I just want to flip this a little bit and say the other thing I say about those data is y'all are good at your jobs and most of the time things are done fast. 
We, we just, there's such a culture of angst and fear and FUD and all this, even if you're trying to have a blameless culture and all that stuff, incidents are scary, but 53 to something percent of the time, you all get it done in under two hours. You're good. You're fast. You act like things work. The stuff you've built, the like rollbacks, the whatever your things are, like your intuition for how your systems work, work more often than they don't. And I feel like that message doesn't get out enough either. Like I, I have all these scary things like MTTR, don't use it, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, but but I, what I really want people to internalize actually is you're the reason these systems work the vast majority of the time. They're socio-technical systems, right? Like a web of humans and computers and, and we're the resilience inherent in that. We make things work and we fix it pretty quickly when they fail. Like y'all need to hear that more often, I think, than we do. So that's, I, that's the biggest takeaway from the data, I feel. Yeah, you're, you're reminding me of years ago when I did IT for OWASP and this is when we were using WordPress primarily for our conference websites. And I was managing them in, in Rackspace's cloud. And I honestly just, it was plain old human stupid. I deleted a production instance of WordPress that was our conference site and it went away. <laughs> and Bye. I had an OMG moment. And then I had backups that were resilient and I got it back up in about an hour or so. And no one actually noticed, which was really great. <laughs> but I mean, if a, if a Kubernetes cluster falls over in the forest and no one's there to hear it, did it really fall over? <laughs> exactly. So these things happen to humans. And you're right. Like, it's interesting because we don't focus on that flip side. The boring blocking tackling of having reliable backups and understanding how the systems work so you can get them back up again never gets cheerleaded as much as, OMG, we had a downtime and we're, we're bad people and blame, 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 right? It's just not very functional. Well, you're kind of getting at some of my other favorite things. And these are different, not not quite the same kind of data. They're not as much of this sort of like quantitative data. But I also looked at like how many companies do root cause analysis and how many companies use language like human error and things like that. It was lower than I thought. Honestly, I thought I was like, but it's a, I think, well, I think it's a skewed sample because I don't have all companies. And the two biggest companies driving it were Google and Microsoft to have formal official RCAs like root cause analysis because I want to try to bust some myths on, on in the root cause and sort of, you know, human error side of the house too, because you mentioned that the sort of successes don't get celebrated. But my favorite brain twister on this comes from John Alspa, who likes to ask people, well, what's the root cause of your successful product launch? <laughs> yep. Oh, wait, you, oh, oh, no, that was a T. Oh wait, that was a team effort. Oh, like everyone was involved in that. And like all of these things contributed to making that happen. Well, your failures are the other side of the coin of that success y'all. And there's no way that there was a single root cause for those kinds of complex systems that it took to build to fall over. That is the nature of them. And so I, I hope we can kind of debunk that one over time as well, partly because what? Oh, so you're telling me that complex systems don't have simple resolutions when it comes to problems <laughs> or, or they don't not on blame. <laughs> yeah, well, they don't have simple causes. They don't have a single yeah. cause, right? There is no root cause. There is a set of contributing factors that came together at the exact moment in time in that exact perfect way that will probably never happen again exactly the same. 
And even better, I don't have the data for this yet. So this is a long, this is a long quest for me. This is something that's called Lauren's Law. Lauren Hoxkey, who works at Netflix. More often, we don't know how often, remediations you put into place to fix a previous event are involved in the next one. <laughs> I, I, can, I can honestly believe that. Because I've seen simple examples of that, not on complex systems, but you, you know, you fix a thing and you're, you get so hyper-focused on this particular domain. It's actually, here's a perfect, here's a perfect analogy. I, I went to England a while back and as an American who drives on what I would call the right side of the road, I looked the <laughs> wrong way every time I crossed the street and God bless me if I didn't get run over, but it was, would have been really easy to happen. Why? Because I was so focused on what is the, the, you know, the way to do it, right? But I'm not looking yeah. the other direction. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and when it's problem solving, it's really easy for people to follow garden path thinking and, you, and, and use heuristics that have worked before and all that. But, but the more you change a complex system, it depends, like what we often do is we put in like guardrails and rules and procedures and run books, and those things just make your system more brittle. And the more guardrails and procedures you put in, the harder it is for those people who understand how those systems work to remediate them. If you have to follow this run book this way, or you can't do that that way anymore, or like, I mean, come on, let's face it. When something falls down, what's the first, th first thing a person's gonna do? They're gonna SH into the box and look what's happening. Yep. What do a lot of organizations do? Absolutely lock down control to that for anybody. And like, don't let anybody in because that would cause problems. So these are the kinds of things that we want to continue to sort of look at and tease out and try to find actual sort of data about. But the second reason I'm not a huge fan of root cause uh, analysis is A, it hyper-focuses on a very specific thing, which is only one part of a much more complex system, but also B, because we're really good, because it's a complex system and we want a simple answer, we're really good at pinning it on people, right? Yep. And, yeah. and we all know that's a problem and yet, it's very hard not to do. And what I've found is the organizations that can wrap their brains around the fact that they are dealing with complex systems that have contributing factors, latent flaws, and they run in a degraded state at all times, and humans are the things that can, they're the least, they're the most capable of kind of overcoming that gut urge to, to pin it on a person. And so it's, you can say, oh, we're blameless, we don't do these things, but if you haven't had the upstream mental model change, you'll never get to a reality that actually supports that kind of, of thinking. So those are the kinds of things we're chasing, I guess. Yeah, and another point you just that popped in my head in our, during our conversation too, is it's when you have the desire to do the guardrails and narrow down to a run book, you, you produce black boxes. And honestly, the most creative, good, interesting people tend to hate black boxes, right? So you put an environment where you're going to incentivize your creative, interesting, uh, think out of the box types are gonna probably pull the parachute and go somewhere else where they can experiment and, and be creative, right? Because there, there are certain people who like to have a run book and just follow the 10 steps and be done with it. And there are other people that just like to meander off in whatever direction suits them, you know, towards some goal. and and. I think those creative types are the people that if you had to hire somebody, those would be the people you'd angst the most about hiring. Those are the ones that are hard to find. Yeah. And also when you look at human error, and I've definitely heard like people are the problem in security systems types of things before, 
it's because you're not looking at the larger picture. You're not looking at the socio-technical environment in which that thing happened. So if somebody fat fingered a config and the system let it through, was that really that person's fault? Did they come to work that day? Like, I'm gonna screw up some stuff. No. But so then there's just what's about what is it about the system that allowed that to, to happen? And did we, we didn't know that, that we couldn't have seen that before. And so let's fix the conditions of the system so that that thing can't happen again versus fire Amy for screwing up the config. For typoing, which none of us do, right? Never, no, not at all. Never, never a typo. Well, this is, so you, so, you, mentioned, you mentioned you had a report and you're doing a report. What kind of, so your reporting <laughs> has been in, in this vein, like I, I to be a full disclosure, yeah. I, I have been to the site. I haven't pulled down the report, so I haven't read it. Yes. So yeah, the, I got all these data and I started just looking around. I didn't, ha I mean, I have some hypotheses as any good researcher would, but when I started looking at these things, that's where I found the distribution data and I connected the dots to Stefan's research at Google, who did the, he did a Monte Carlo simulation on all these duration data, which showed how you can't detect the change in MTTR. I can give you a link to put that in there. And I talk about his work in the report extensively. So the first report that came out last fall was just my first shot at what I could see in the void, given what I have. We have about 2000 public incident reports and they're currently covering just shy of 700 organizations. Like I said, everything from like tweets to like full-blown postmortems and it's variable data in there. Like we, it's certainly not ironclad for every single one of those that we have all the metadata we want. But so I started looking around and, and that's where the MTTR results came from. We're, that's where we're starting to try to establish a baseline for who's doing root cause analysis and maybe tracking over time what that looks like for them. And then we plan to, re excuse me, I'm stumbling. We plan to release a report twice a year. We're early in the stages of this. We're not at like massive reports that, that have been established for, for years or decades. And so we're trying to figure out what threads we want to pull and then what baselines do we want to establish that we can track over time. And root cause analysis uh, and language is one that I intend to look at quite a bit more over time. Like the language that people use in reports, the language of media reports versus company reports. There's so much interesting stuff in there that's very different than the way people may have looked at these kinds of reports in the past. And so for this spring, I'm chasing duration just a little bit more. So I feel like we can get more data in and look at the MTTR question across a bigger set of companies. And just I'm just trying to get as much data in so I can see that that result is replicable, basically, so that I feel really confident in that. But then, like I said, I think I alluded to this earlier, I'm trying to chase the notion that longer incidents are somehow worse, which I don't think is true. But like I said, I want to see if the data play that out or not. And then I'm actually partnering hopefully soon with a couple of research uh, institutions, which I can't mention yet, but hopefully soon. <laughs> so doing some research with a couple of academic groups as well who study you know, distributed systems at an academic level and trying to bring that to industry. So there's just a lot of different, you know, sort of avenues going on with us right now. But mostly we need people to send us their reports, <laughs> please. I can only crawl so many websites or, you know, <laughs> so that's like the big, the big the big request I have is for people to go download the report. And if you look at it, you go, oh, I'm a security person. This isn't for me. Trust me. It's for you. This is for people who care about the internet and safety and reliability of all the services that we run on it. And so the more we get into the void, the more we can know about what's happening. So that's, that's my biggest, my biggest plea. It's, I feel like it's the beginning of a sea change. It's going to take a long time and I need as much help as I can get. Well, definitely if you are having a sea change, it will not be quick. 
Well, one thing that, that yeah. comes to mind when you're mentioning about the metadata, I, I, and I'm just, my, my internal anal retentiveness is fighting itself. Like, how did you come to the decision that less or incomplete metadata is better than desiring perfect metadata or you don't come in? How was that, what drove that decision? That's a good one. Uh, partly because I feel like we have enough data from that that you can treat it as a sample, like a, a, real, a reliable population sample. So I'm not trying to argue that we have all completeness of these, but I feel like we have enough already that it's a good sample. And so any sort of statistical proposition where you study the sample and based on what those stats look like, you have confidence that it is representative of the whole. So I feel like that was partly it was that. And also that there's plenty to be learned from what's not there. There's only so much you can learn from incident reports, just to begin with. What we in the public get, of, if an organization chooses to write it up, for example, is still only half the story. And things are, are omitted either for financial or security or press release or whatever reasons. And then even then, there's all kind, oftentimes you rarely get them written. They're written more as a marketing thing or possibly as a technical. Sometimes you can tell they're written for engineers to try to convince them to come work there. But in the end, we're two or three layers of abstraction from quote unquote, what really happened. But even given that, I think there's signal in the absence of information. So what don't people choose to tell you? What isn't there? I come from a social sciences background. I come from like a cognitive neuroscience background. Um, and so I, I'm trying to bring a very sort of broadly, a broad discipline to this. And there's a lot of things we can look at that will tell us about these as socio-technical systems, not just what percentage of incidents, like, trust me, actually, it's not always DNS, by the way, just FYI. <laughs> but like, it's really easy to just focus on that. And so I think I didn't want to omit things that could still tell us about incidents, even if they didn't have all the metadata we wanted. Does, does that answer your question? That does. That's really good. Yeah. And I guess, honestly, if I had to make any decision, right, and you're in essence, not make really decisions, but you're gleaning data from or trends or whatever from this data. If I had to make a decision, though, I would rather have all of the partial data I could get versus yes. just the perfect, because a lot of times that's when you get to be in management, well, right? It's dealing with incomplete data sets. I'm going to make a yeah. judgment call with the best data yeah. I can scrounge. Yeah. I also would not be convinced that only the organizations that gave, that provided every single bit that I needed would then be a representative sample of the larger population as a whole. I just couldn't, I couldn't make that argument at that point. I don't well, think. I, I did a complete survey of all elephants and I found out that animals are very heavy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. Perfect. Perfect example of like, yeah, sample bias, right? Crazy, crazy yeah, sample bias. Exactly. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So, Cause you're right. There's a lot of, there's a lot of companies that won't even think about producing these, this kind of data, right? Publicly. And then of those that yeah. do, I, I having been at some of those places, like there's a fight to get even, we had an incident publicly noted. And then if yeah. it is, or, or, or you have to have executive approval to declare an incident. That's my favorite yeah. one. Yeah, right. So incidents don't happen because we don't call them incidents. Therefore everything's good. Yep. Oh, yeah. And I mean, yeah. And then there's all of the incentive gaming around which sev it is and do you declare it? And if you don't declare it and yeah, I don't have the data on that, but we you know someday maybe we'll learn more about those things. So, yeah, that, that is true. Well, that, that's yeah. <laughs> I've lived some of those internal struggles and they're very interesting. Right? They're very because real. It, yeah. And things tend to it, it's interesting. Well, I mean, in my in my 
very broad sample size of one person's life in AppSec. So I'm qualifying this quite a lot. I, like, it seems to me that a lot of the ones I've experienced anyway were terrible until we figured out the real context of it. And then we started walking them back. And that seems yeah. to be the general trend that I've noticed. Zero data behind this besides my experience, which is worth something, I guess, but certainly not scientific. But it is interesting how we tend to go to the OMG and then walk it back some when we realize like, well, wait a minute. Oh, that's only 2% of our customer base actually uses that service and it's down. So we're not as spooked as we used to be, but yes, a service is down, but the service is yeah. not so consequential. So uh, it's bad, but we're not gonna lose sleep yeah. over such thing. Yeah, yeah. And there's so much humanity in these things that we try to, that we don't pay attention to. So, which is why I like to come at this research with a sort of a social sciences background as well, because, I think we can shine a light on a lot of those things. Other than like the Dora stuff, the DevOps report things, most of what you see of you know, industry surveys and research and stuff is just focused on te the technology and the numbers of who's doing this. And that's half the story at best, if okay. we don't figure out our role in those things. So All right. one of the things I like about this research and, and you in particular, quite honestly, is you don't have a strictly technical background, right? You're approaching tech from a non-tech point of view. And it's really interesting to me looking forward where it used to be at maybe you got a comp sci or an MIS degree, but it was fairly general and you otherwise just figured out what you wanted to do after you graduated. Now you can get these like hyper specific, I got a cybersecurity SOC analyst degree. And I, I understand that that's pragmatically probably maybe it seems good to industry. But I worry that they're coming in with the missing a lot of background and, and broader understanding. I, like both of my kids are in college. Well, one's about to go to college. He's almost done with his high school. And both of them are going to a, a liberal arts school, which I think is fantastic. I mean, it, getting a broad background is really useful. I have an economics undergrad and I fall back on that economics like thinking style quite a lot. I talk about incentives and, and those kind of things because it's in my brain from my economics undergrad. And I think I'm a yeah. better security professional because of that. Well, you're on my favorite soapbox now, because I also <laughs> am a liberal arts uh, major myself. And I, th I think that here's the deal when you're dealing in particular with security and humans and availability of complex systems, we we have to take that broader view of understanding how those things work. And what's really interesting, a trend that I'm seeing is companies hiring incident analysts, a, a dedicated role of an incident analyst. And this is on the availability side, if you will, we're not gonna, pro I promise we're not really trying to draw those hard lines because you already have analysts and security side of the house, but we're seeing this just more generally. And what's fascinating about these people is they have to have enough familiarity with the technology, right? Like you can't just be like, what's a database? But there's a very different skill set involved in analyzing an incident of any kind, regardless of what the, if you want to draw lines, a security incident, an availability incident, whatever, than there is in building the systems and maintaining those that fall over. And it has a distinctly liberal arts whiff to it. <laughs> the people who are good at analyzing incidents are technical, but they also have skills in doing research, reading through all kinds of materials, interviewing people, building trust with people to get real stories out of them, weaving a narrative together, figuring out what themes of things are and tracking those over time. And these are things that just inherently make sense to me 
But that's not a skill set that you're going to get if you just go get a comp sci degree or you go to the hottest whatever and or you get a very specific security degree. And I, I, I harbor a, a deep suspicion that organizations that invest in that, that invest in learning from your incidents, are going to get better at how they you know handle their incidents. They're going to have better adaptive capacity. They're going to understand their system performance and safety boundaries better. They're going to become more wizard level about this stuff if they invest in it from that perspective of having people who have a skill set that is different than the people who built the systems. Yeah, well, I think anybody, honestly, I don't, I don't know. I, I, maybe I'm fortunate and I just get tech better than other people. I honestly don't believe that, but who, who knows? But I really believe that having that broader view of things makes you so much of a better employee. And, and if, if you don't know what a database is, I can teach you that in, a, in a, an hour or a day yeah. or something. Right? It doesn't take, it's none of this is, like when you get under the covers of tech, none of it's bloody rocket science. It's all fairly yeah. rational. I mean, it has to be, a computer's running it, right? It can't be completely irrational. So Well, it can be, we this, built them. Yeah. Well, <laughs> The outcomes can be irrational, certainly. Yeah. But, like learning the tech is not the, is not the part to me that's important. That's book learning. Yeah. And honestly, whatever I learned in college way long ago is so horrifically out of date. It, it doesn't <laughs> it, it doesn't even matter. You know what I mean? So I, I think you do better to, to emphasize on maybe the air quote softer side skills. I don't know what, how you label them correctly, but those kind of thinking, general thinking, general problem solving is so much more universally applicable across tech that's going to change. I mean, when I graduated, containers were nothing. They didn't exist. We didn't even really have VMs when I graduated from college. And now we have Kubernetes that's spawning up random containers on the fly, on demand, configuration-based, blah, blah, blah. Like, so if I learned when I, were, I could when it, about OS's yeah. operating systems in college, it, it's kind of neat, but it really doesn't matter <laughs> in a Kubernetes world. <laughs> I was gonna say when I was at Amazon that people got really excited about CSS, so that'll give you some time context. <laughs> yep. Um, but I will say I don't consider them soft. So interviewing people and knowing how to interview people and writing well is hard because I've been doing it for decades. But again, it's learnable. Like it is. Uh, these are all skills that people can learn if they want to. And so I just I think that the key thing is understanding that analyzing an incident is not the same thing as building the systems that that were involved in that. And that's okay. But I hope more organizations really invest in folks who can develop that as a role and a capacity because I think it's I think it's a bit of, it, it will be a secret sauce in my opinion, in the same way that sort of general DevOps stuff has been. So I have this penchant for detail and I can, in my early career, I used to tell everybody to the goriest nth detail exactly what happened. And I, shockingly, my seven page emails weren't read. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Rocket science, right? Wow, people do not read, want to read a novella every time I want to tell them something. So <sighs> I started to do this and it, it, it almost like internally made me angry that I'm having to write this short little brief description. And because I was such a, a bloody stickler, I would write and the full details and then write my seven pages. But then <laughs> honestly, that was just assuaging my own like internal problems. I would have read yeah. that crap now, honestly. If I get mm -mm. the summary gives me what I need, I'm done. Like, yeah, if I'm, yeah. I'm curious and I have some slack time, I might read that long novella thing I stuck in the end, but it really served no purpose. And like doing whatever you consider to be right, if it doesn't serve, the audience that you're talking to is wrong. <laughs> it's just flat wrong. Well, 
And on, I mean, it's interesting because like when you talk about audience, that's one of the things we do like an, in, an internal incident chat every couple of weeks here just to keep the, uh, keep the skills sharp where we read uh, public incidents and we talk about them, you know, what can and we can't, we learn from them. And you'll see that people write these things for very different audiences and you can almost start to learn, oh, this was a PR thing. This was written for engineers. This was written for whatever this reason is. And all those reasons are valid. But yeah, it's being able to write to an audience is a skill that is still not, I think, as celebrated even in our world as it should be. No, and it, it's definitely hard having done a wee little bit of writing, not much. So I have something that I started doing on my last podcast that I'd like to, to yes. warn you about this. So sorry, but it's uh, nothing spooky. Fun. It's nothing okay. spooky. I have these cards from the base camp card company. My daughter got a deck for Christmas and I bought another deck. Be and they have questions. They were supposed to be like, uh, icebreakery kind of question. Okay. And I thought, all right. Why not at the end of, a, of all of my podcasts have this nice, completely random deck shuffly, which I'm doing right now, <laughs> shuffling the deck of, of cards, and I'll pick one off the top and I'll ask you some random innocuous question that will have I nothing to do with what we were just talking about. So Perfect. Let's see. Oh, this is a nice, easy one, I guess. What's your guilty pleasure? Ah, <laughs> Oh, what's my guilty pleasure? Um, anything, uh, well, so food guilty pleasure is anything involving dip. Like, I, just, you, you name it, except maybe like fishy dip. I don't like fishy dip, but like French onion dip, bean dip, ranch dip. I don't, you know, if you can dip something in it, I'm there for it. I like, wow. I like dip. It's so very weird. And yeah, and let's see, what other guilty pleasure, I don't know, like TV-wise or not? I don't really have, I don't know. Yeah, no, dip is good. Because mm, I wouldn't have dip. guessed that. I th you know, like the, the trite thing would be, say, like chocolate or something. But that's interesting. I'm not, a, I'm not a sweets person. But I mean, if you put like a charcuterie plate or like dip in front of me, I will get into trouble. Like, I can't stop eating that stuff. <laughs> Perfect. So yeah, there you go. That's my guilty pleasure, dip. So everybody now knows what to get you for a gift. Some kind of yeah. Oh yeah, yes, yeah. So yes. This is perfect. So we we've, we've informed the audience about uh, incidents and about how to buy you gifts. So we 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 were doing good <laughs> this time. Oh wait, then I should have said really good gin. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I I rescind to... my initial answer and say really good gin is my guilty pleasure. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you. This, this has been a blast. This has really been fun and, and super informative. I, I, James Wickett gave me a pointer to you, and I'm very happy he did. He couldn't be here today, unfortunately, or else he'd be in with the fun. But um, He I'm, is I'm fun to have to in with it. Me too. We'll me just, too. Thank you. Yeah, we'll just have to do another one and get James in here. That'll be perfect. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, James, James is the DevSecOps man of the century, in my opinion. And I think he speaks better to that even than I do, for sure. So I'll have to, you know, get him on for that. And but yeah, it's been a treat. Absolutely. I've loved chatting with you. All right. Well, thank you very much. This is the OWASP podcast series. I'd like to thank No Name Security for making it possible for me to record this episode. No Name is a complete and proactive API security platform that protects APIs in real time and detects vulnerabilities and misconfigurations before they can be exploited. 
No Name is an out-of-band solution that integrates with your existing infrastructure to provide deeper visibility and security. Please give them a look.